All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Honestly Bilal. I'm your host, Bilal Ahmed, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of Toledo. And this is Honestly Bilal, the show for the aspiring ophthalmologist, where I sit down and talk with medical students who are interested in ophthalmology, with residents who are training in ophthalmology, and with current ophthalmologists in the field today. I bet my guest today is Dr. Jose Elen Sahel. Dr. Sahel is the uh, Eye and Ear Endowed Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and the director of the Eye Center at UPMC. Dr. Sahel, thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute honor to talk with you. Nice to talk to you too, thank you. So, you know, I like to ask all my guests their origin story, what got them into ophthalmology, what got them interested in ophthalmology. And you have a very particular story that's kind of of interest to me because you actually, you were born in Algeria, you went to medical school in France, did your residency in France, and you did your residency in neurology and neurosurgery. Uh, before you started getting involved in ophthalmology. So kind of tell us how your path developed and what got you interested in ophthalmology. Uh, well, it can be a long story, but I try to make it very short. So uh, my initial plan was to become an oncologist, a pediatric oncologist. And uh, uh, for familiar reasons, I had to take an intermediate rotation before I, I got started. So I took ophthalmology uh, just by chance initially. And I, I kind of liked it a lot. Then when I started my actual residency, I studied in neurology and then neurosurgery, but I found that it was quite uh, inefficient at that time. It was uh, many, many years ago. We were more or less doing nice diagnosis, but there was not much therapy available. So I really liked ophthalmology because it's part of neuroscience. It's also very efficient. And, uh, and I thought also that we are covering a full field, which is I think much nicer than many other disciplines, but I guess any field where you get into uh, in depth deeply, you start to like it. Sure. So, and that's interesting about ophthalmology for all the medical students who are out there. Two things that you just mentioned, uh, efficiency is a large part of the specialty that you, you tend to notice how ophthalmologists do prioritize being efficient. Uh, and also neuroscience is a big aspect of the field. So, you know, something of interest of mine with, with uh, what I've learned about you is um, you have a big interest and you've been a pioneer in uh, optogenetics and the, in the options of optogenetics in inherited retinal diseases, along with gene therapy and stem cell therapy. So optogenetics is uh, the science of, you know, expressing light sensitive proteins in cells of the retina uh, when certain cells of photoreceptor cells are lost. So Dr. Sahel, talk to us about optogenetics and inherited retinal diseases. Where do you see the future of therapeutic options of inherited retinal diseases going? Uh, you know, right now, some would describe it as a renaissance period, as some of my former guests have said. Uh, so what do you see as optogenetics being a player in that? And where do you see that going forward? Yeah, sure. I'll try to give you some background. Uh, some years ago, I would say 30 years ago, there was nothing not even a good genetic understanding of the disease. The first gene was identified in 1990. And uh, for many years, we were hoping for gene therapy to occur. It took 20 years for this to really get started and to start to work. And now, as you know, we have an approved gene therapy, but still it's only targeting a very small group of patients. And these patients have to be taken care of at the early stage of the disease or mid stage of the disease. When you get into later stages, when vision loss is more severe, then most of these patients would not benefit for corrective gene therapy. But beyond that, uh, although there are currently 30 gene therapies in the making, there are many more diseases. Just for retinitis pigmentosa, we are talking about 71 genes as of today, and uh, 
genetic disorders of a retina is probably several hundred and more to come. So which means that it's going to be very complex to develop a specific gene therapy for all of these patients. So in parallel to being involved in many corrective gene therapy approaches, we have now, uh, for example, for labors optic neuropathy, my department in Paris had led a lot of work. So we have three phase three that are ongoing currently that are very promising papers are upcoming on that. So this is certainly something I believe is going to be important, corrective gene therapy. But when you try to think uh, about all patients as a whole, uh, I've been trying to develop gene-independent approaches. So my the backbone of my research, uh, and both clinical and, uh, and lab research, has been to try to target patients when they have lost a lot of road photoreceptors, which means that they have lost dark adapted vision, but still have quite good central vision constrictive visual field because of a loss of peripheral cones, and you would like to keep that. So uh, I spent many years to try to understand why the cones degenerate, and uh, we found out that there is an underlying mechanism that is there is a crosstalk between the roads and the cones. We discovered the signal uh, with my collaborator, Thierry Leveilla, and uh, we understood the signaling, which is underlying that, and uh, beyond the top papers published, the most important is that this is getting back to patients, and hopefully next year we are starting a trial to really try to maintain central vision in this patient. But there is a stage of the disease where the photoreceptors are either dead or they are what we call dormant, which means that it's very unlikely that you can make them go back to regrowth or segments and be functional. So this is where many therapies can be envisioned with, a, I would say, limited ambition in terms of vision restoration, but still better than nothing. Uh, artificial retina is part of that. I've spent a lot of time where my department in Paris was the first to apply the Argus. And meanwhile, we have developed in partnership with Daniel Palanco a new wireless uh, chip that we tested in patients already. We have been working on stem cells like others, and uh, we have an ongoing trial for RPE transplantation in uh, some forms of retinitis pigmentosa. But uh, optogenetics has uh, really uh, flashed out as a very promising field. The reason for that is that uh, this is a natural mechanism of phototransduction. Light is being absorbed. Transduction may not be the right term, but it's triggering either the opening of a channel or the activation of a pump, which is inducing a current transform brain. And uh, initially, many years ago, 10 years ago, we published uh, with uh, Botan Roska from Basel in, in Science, a paper where we showed that you could reactivate dormant cones in the retina using optogenetics. And we did that in several animal models in post-mortem human retina. And uh, looking at the OCT images from patients with advanced retinitis pigmentosa, it seemed that there is a window of opportunity to reactivate these dormant cones. So we embarked into a very systematic approach with support from Foundation Fighting Blindness to develop this program into a clinical program. And we started to test that in uh, primates. Uh, it turned out that it was more complex than anticipated because you need to overexpress the protein and uh, it doesn't always get to the membrane. So we modified the approach and uh, we have been following several tracks in parallel. One is already in the clinic, in a clinical trial, which was to target the ganglion cells. The ganglion cells are not degenerating in the disease. 
Actually, PAN in Detroit had used this approach using uh, uh, channel rhodopsin, but we thought that this channel rhodopsin needs a lot of light and we wanted something which would be safer. So we were able to identify a protein that is shifted into the red, the amber actually, that has been developed by Ed Boyden at MIT. And we were able with my team in Paris to show that you can activate ganglion cells safely with a, an amount of light that is kind of compatible with uh, survival of the cells. And also we developed gargoyles and cameras that are able to function like the retina, which is called the biomimetic or event-based approach. So this led a company that's a span of my department in Paris to start a clinical trial that is now inpatient, both in Paris, in London, and in Pittsburgh. And uh, well, I, I can't tell too much, but this is kind of promising. Uh, in parallel, we have developed approaches to try to target the bipolar cells because the advantage of the bipolar cells is that you can target the on or the off pathway, whereas with ganglion cells, it's more difficult to be cell-specific. And uh, we have not given up of uh, trying to reactivate the cone. So Denis Delcara in Paris, but also Boton Roska in Basel are developing approaches to uh, reactivate the cones. And this is also something that should get in the clinic at some point. So there are different approaches uh, which try to restore vision in advanced stages of the disease. And uh, obviously it won't be fully normal vision, but it could be kind of useful. Last year, we published a review in the Science Translational Medicine trying to position these approaches in the landscape, gene therapy for early stages of the disease, when you can have a specific gene defect, neuroprotection for mid stages of the disease, optogenetics or prosthetics or cell therapy at more advanced stages of the disease. And this is where imaging plays a key role because it enables us to really see at the cellular level what's occurring in the retina. So what you can hope from the therapy in terms of a restoration or preservation of vision. So it's a long answer, but just to give you an idea of the landscape. Yeah. No, thank you. I think that's a very comprehensive answer. It covers a lot of different things that makes it very fascinating. And, and like you mentioned, that there's a, it's, it's mostly going to, it looks like to be a, a multimodal approach in terms of different therapeutic options and how they can combine to come out with an outcome. So I think for any medical student out there who's interested in ophthalmology, the, the key message is, uh, you know, ophthalmology is very interesting from a research standpoint because this ties in, uh, like you mentioned, not only neuroscience when it comes to uh, the different layers of cells in the retina, whether it be bipolar cells or ganglion cells and how they function compared to photoreceptor cells, but also the approach of, you know, things that you used earlier in your undergraduate career in terms of organic chemistry as well, um, because again, the photoreceptor cells are, are essentially a rearrangement of electrons that when lights hits them, it creates a signal. So I think it's interesting just to keep in mind for anybody who's interested in ophthalmology that, uh, you know, ophthalmology does have a heavy basic science uh, research application to it. And if you're interested in stuff like that, uh, you probably have a place in the field as well. And so, what's also appealing is that uh, there are a lot of technologies, and this is a field where the ophthalmology was the first to use microsurgery, lasers, now the first to apply at this scale gene therapy with success. And uh, all these devices that are enabling us to see at the cellular level have been very involved in a lot of research on imaging. And uh, in the clinical setting, we are seeing neurons, we are seeing a cell that are, and we are testing the function almost at the cellular level. Nothing like that does exist in any other field. And the same is happening now with all these technologies, these goggles, we are combining uh, uh, really technologies that are in the field of uh, electronics or artificial intelligence with uh, biological tools. So it's really very, very appealing uh, for someone who wants to have a, both a very focused approach to patient because it's a patient-centered approach based on the stage of the disease, the expectation, the genotype, the phenotype, in-depth phenotyping, but also applying a large set of technologies 
to really fit the needs of the patient. So I, I think maybe this is true in other fields, but uh, my experience is that this is really uh, extremely motivating every day. Absolutely. And I, I should mention that you do have over 40 patents uh, and you sit on, the, uh, sit on 11 editorial boards and you hold professorships in, in multiple different countries. So I, I think anybody who's seriously interested should take your words of advice with the absolute uh, certainty. So Dr. Sahel, another thing I, I want to get your perspective on is for people like me who are fourth year medical students uh, in hopes of uh, next year starting residency in ophthalmology, how would you, how would you, you know, really encourage us to maintain our research interest or grow on those as we go throughout training uh, for a lifelong career like you've had in terms of what you developed is something you've been interested in with inherited retinal diseases. Uh, how do you really explore the interest in training and how do you really grow upon that? What do you look for or what should we look for in terms of mentorship and how can we really expand on those opportunities? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very important question, but the answer is, uh, is uh, several fold. The first thing is that there is nothing that should stray away from patients' need. Uh, all the questions we have to tackle are questions that come from the patient. So we start with a very holistic approach. The patient has a very global question, and uh, medicine has been successful by being reductionist, but reductionism, uh, there, is a, uh, there is a toll on that, which is that we from sometimes forget the full picture. So we should keep a focus on patient needs, the expectation. Developing a therapy that doesn't meet patient expectation doesn't make any sense. So we, every week I'm starting my week by seeing patients because this is what triggers all my curiosity, all the interest I have. So the second thing is that curiosity should never be killed by the amount of things you have to learn as a medical student. A medical student has to digest tons of things, uh, some, Many are not that useful, and sometimes this can kill curiosity because you can tend to believe that you know many things, but you know sometimes superficially, and actually until you get into the depth of a question, it's not sure that you really understand what it is. But it's impossible for someone who is in the field of medicine to know everything, uh, and we have to know a lot because we don't know what a patient is going to ask us. So keeping this balance between in-depth understanding and uh, this breadth that we need to, co to cover is very important. And this depth uh, is coming from patient. I, when I was a medical student and a, a resident, every time I was seeing a patient and was not really understanding fully what was happening, I would go to the textbook in the evening, I would go and I would go online to really try to understand what's going on. And if you do that systematically, over time you build a, a knowledge which is deeper and it is triggered by this individual patient that is really feeding your curiosity and you will to understand better. Uh, the, the other thing is that uh, because uh, you cannot be excellent in everything, just we have to accept that, but we don't want to compromise the chances of our patient. Residency is a very, it's a golden period. It's also a very difficult period because this is the time where you are day and night committed to patient care. So you have to learn a lot. I was describing that you have to, to, to read and everything, but at the same time, this is a period of your life when you are acquiring the skills that will last forever. These skills are not only the surgical skills, but are so important and really to understand every step of the surgery, adapt to any unpredicted uh, situation, which is very important too, but also to learn how to cope with the evolving pace of knowledge. And uh, this is true in medicine, in ophthalmology, everything changed since, since I started my residency in ophthalmology and now there's almost nothing left. Uh, the general thinking is there, the disease is still there, but everything in surgery, in imaging, in therapies, everything changed. So you have to be prepared for a life of a lot of learning, for continuous learning, and the residency period is a very important one. So for example, in our program here, we, we have given the resident half a day a week, which is not a lot 
for their own project. But we know that the rest of the week is going to be extremely busy with patient care and learning surgery and everything. And believing that you can maintain during your residency enough time to do research is probably misleading because uh, this is not happening. You are very busy. You are very busy, which is great because you are exposed to an amazing number of patients, but also an amazing number of training people to train you, of mentors that want to teach you about glaucoma, about retina, about cornea, about neuroophthalmology. So this is amazing. It's really, really I remember when I, I did my residency in France and then I did a fellowship at Harvard. And uh, I envied the residents because they were exposed to so many subspecialties. And uh, so I, I tried to attend all the courses of a resident. So I just like relearned everything because I wanted to benefit from this type of exposure. So this is what we have in our program here. We make sure that every single rotation, they get into the depth of the field and we know they won't get everything from it, but they get the open mind to really learn in the future. And then obviously, if you have an interest in research, uh, it means that your curiosity should never be killed uh, during the process of being so busy all the time. But if you stay like uh, someone who wants to understand and doesn't accept when we are inefficient, where the therapy is not working, we have many fields in ophthalmology, despite the efficiency, where we are not efficient at all. So we should never accept that. We should never say, well, this is what it is. I'm so good at doing cataracts. I'm happy with that. We should really want to be able to help every single patient. And if we cannot help the patient today, Telling the patient that we are, we are, and the others are working in research and we are connected and working together, trying to find a solution, is being on the side of a patient. They understand that we have not given up, we want to find a cure. It may take 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but we, this is part of a process. So there are many things that are obvious. I would say maybe what I'm telling you is nothing new and uh, maybe boring, but I think uh, this is uh, the way I see that. Starting from patient question, making sure that you are everything that is available, any therapy that is available, you, you master it, but making sure that if we don't know, we try to learn better and to do better in the future. Oh, Dr. Sell, I don't think that's boring at all. I think that's a lot of wisdom there in terms of, you know, like you mentioned, staying curious, maintaining, I think it's also like you mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us who will hopefully go through training will realize that there's a lot of volume in terms of a lot to learn, but hopefully that curiosity stays and that's really, really what will push the field forward if we maintain that curiosity. Uh, and I think, like you mentioned, staying adaptable with training, but also keeping uh, keeping an eye out for questions that we see across every day in clinic setting or in the OR. So I think that's a great pearl of advice that hopefully we can all take forward from this conversation. And I really want to thank you for joining me. Thank you for taking the time to talk about such an interesting wide range of topics. And uh, hopefully I can meet you in person someday and continue to pick your brain more about this topic and others. With pleasure. Thanks a lot for your interest and uh, this time we spent together. Thank you very much. Great opportunity. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Honestly Bilal. You can find the video format of these interviews on the Honestly Bilal YouTube channel. For all the latest updates on chats with future guests, follow me on Twitter at Bilal underscore 1712 and on Instagram at Honestly Bilal. Thanks and chat with you soon.